This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale, Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Thomas Plummer, who grew up in an old farmhouse outside of Gilderland Center on a few acres of cultivated land. I was outside all the time, he says, of tending to the corn and other vegetables his family grew to eat. The tedious work outdoors prepared him for work as an archaeologist. Now an anthropology professor at Queens College, Plummer and his crew found real treasure at his site in Kenya, molars from an ancient hominin that could change our understanding of the origins of toolmaking. Early humans may not have been the only ones making and using stone tools. Tell us how it is that you ended up in Kenya. I read somewhere that you found this site 20 years ago. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, about 20 years ago. But I was working on another site. I actually work on a peninsula. So I collaborate with teams from the National Museums of Kenya and from the Smithsonian Institution. And I've been working on this peninsula in Lake Victoria called the Hama, H-O-M-A Peninsula, since, uh, well, I first visited in 1986, and then I did my dissertation work there. And then I did my dissertation based on one of the sites. And we were working at one one site where we found an early archaeological you know, site assemblage of stone tools and animal bones. I think the oldest evidence for hunting that was at about 2 million years ago at a site called Kanjara. And I dug there for 20 years. Um, So it it was a long, long time digging. And then while we were at Kanjara, we heard from some people who were working with us, some of the locals who lived in the area. Hey, you know, we've got another spot over here that has similar stone tools and fossils. Do you want to come look at it? And I, of course, said yes. And that ended up being this other site called Nyayanga. So we couldn't work at Nyayanga right away because we were still had so much work to do at Kanjara. We were we had thousands of fossils and artifacts there. So, you know, when when we did surveys at Nyayanga, and eventually we were able to shift over there and start digging. And that's some of the finds that were described in the the science paper actually came from those excavations. So if you could put in layman's terms mm-hmm. what it is that is so exciting about what you discovered, I, I mean, I think most of us are familiar at least with the idea of the leakies and, and the tools right. that they uncovered, but just kind of put in layman's terms what it is you found at, at this dig. Well, if you want to take a step back, you need to think about humanity. And humanity is a technologically dependent species. It's not that we just just use it sort of intermittently. We our survival is dependent on technology. If you drop humans naked, you know, that's the whole point of the shows like Naked and Afraid. If if you drop people into contexts where they have nothing, they're going to die unless they make technology to gather food, unless they make shelters, unless they generate fire. We are a technologically dependent species. So when does the evidence of that first appear in the, the geological record? 
uh, the oldest archaeological sites are going now back back to almost 3.3 million years ago. And, you know, are those are those early human ancestors? They're not human. I mean, our species isn't around then. These are precursors to humanity. And I, I work on the first stone tool technology that was widespread across much of the world and and also lasted for a very long time. So I'm interested in looking at these early technologies to get a sense of when when technological dependency first appears. When do people really become, you know, wedded to the use of artifacts, becoming dependent on artifacts or other technologies? To, for their survival. So I'm looking at basically the, the adaptive significance of early stone tool technology and how important it was to our ancient ancestors. Um, so that that's it. So that's why I'm interested in it. And this site, Yayanga, is is the oldest example of this very widely distributed stone tool technology called the Old Awan, which you mentioned Galikis. Mary and Louis Leakey named that industry based on uh, finds from Olduvai Gorge. But, but Nyayanga is actually older than Olduvai Gorge. So just tell us what these Olduwan <laughs> tools consist of, because most of us don't think of tools in yeah. the same way that you do. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, tools are things that are being used to, to manipulate materials in the environment. And, you know, with the Olduwan, they have one, one cobble that they're using as a hammer stone, and then they're striking a rock... Right, another rock, which is the core, and knocking flakes off it. Right, and these sharp flakes can be used as knife blades. So you've got basically a pounding technology and a cutting technology. You've got you've, you've got stones you can pound with, and you've got stones that you can use essentially as knives. And then these knives can be used to cut anything you want. They could be used to butcher animals. They could be used to uh, to clean tubers off. And, and other plant materials, they can be used to work wood, to make wooden tools. And then the pounding tools can be used to pound foods as well, because everything's being eaten raw at this point. There's no cooking. So when they're eating hippo, for example, it's hippo tartar. They're, they're, they're eating raw hippopotamus. So they're having to cut, I'm sure they're cutting that meat up into small enough pieces that they can easily chew it. And they're probably pounding it as well. So cutting and pounding are really important. And... You might think, well, how how you know how big a breakthrough is is just having a, a a reasonably simple cutting and and pounding technology. It's actually a huge breakthrough. If you imagine trying to do anything just with your bare hands, you're you're not going to get very far in terms of working materials, in terms of cleaning plant foods, in terms of butchering animals. Our closest living relatives—they're not our ancestors. But there are closest living relatives, the chimpanzees. They hunt and they eat meat, but they don't have tools. So what are they eating? They're they're eating monkeys and and baby piglets, mostly monkeys though, and little antelopes if they catch them occasionally. And and they're just killing them with a bite, and they're they're rending them apart with their bare hands and 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 eating them that way. So so without without like a flake technology you could you couldn't butcher anything big and you know at this site between 2.6 and 3 million years ago we have hippopotamus butchery sites which they can access a hippo they can cut into a hippo and butcher it because they've got 
stone flakes. And and these flakes basically allowed them to. If you can butcher a hippo, you can butcher anything. If if a if a blue whale had beached itself nearby, they would have been able to butcher the blue whale. Even, you know, it's it's it seems very simple, but it's actually in terms of what it gives you access to, like really tremendous. We I don't think we'd be here today talking on computers if this if this technology hadn't come about, because what you see during the course of human evolution. Is, is an increase in brain size over time. And that's being fueled by changes in the diet. And, and the dietary improvements you get, being able to rely on foods that may be hard to acquire, but are, but are really nutritionally dense, give you a lot of nutrition per unit volume, like meats, like, like carbohydrates, like, like, like underground storage organs. We eat potatoes today, so you can think of potatoes, but there are wild versions of things like that. All of that is, is accessible because of stone technology or wooden tools that you could make from, from with stone tools. So, you know, the, the changes you see in human evolution wouldn't have occurred without, without lithic technology. And, and the first really clear, I think, significant lithic technology is this older one technology that I've been talking about. Well, thank you for that fascinating context. Um, I do remember reading somewhere that 2% of our body weight is our brain, yet it's 20% of <laughs> the nutrition that we get goes to our brain. And so this whole relationship of having to have the tools to get the nutrition that allowed us to develop is is quite remarkable and a bigger body size too so yeah. so i mean you, you see during the course of hominin of 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 our evolution that there's a shift towards larger body size as diet improves so you know early hominins like if you've ever heard of lucy a little australopithecus you know the males were maybe 5 five to five and a half feet tall and the females were like three and a half feet tall if you can imagine like a three and a half foot tall you know little hominin walking around that's that's really small it's it's with the you know after after you start getting stone tool use and you start getting these shifts in diet you see body size increasing as well and that's being fueled by by changes in the diet too this is all pre-cooking though like cooking then is another huge important step and that that happens later in time we're not sure exactly when but but it happens later in time <laughs> well so another thing that i understand you found at this site um were two molars of uh, a <laughs> hominin that was not <laughs> homeo sapping yeah uh, not our genus not genus homo yes yeah. and so tell us about that Tell us what well, that means I, I, and why that's important. Yeah, I wish I had a cast of it. I could. I, I don't know if you want to put a picture up. I can send you. I can like send you a picture maybe at some point. Oh, just that of, would be wonderful like. because yeah. you were holding up these marvelous early tools, and unfortunately, we are audio, not video. So I took a screen. Uh, I took a screenshot. Okay, <laughs> but if you okay. have actual, you know, photographs you could send, I think it would really help people understand to see. But tell us about these yeah. two molars. These, and these molars are from a really big-toothed, big-jawed kind of human relative called a Paranthropus. So Paranthropus has an enormous face and cheek teeth that are four times the size of ours. So their molars are have four times the surface area of our molars. And they've got 
premolars, their bicuspids are also like molars, and they've got itty bitty incisors in the front and canines. So they're doing very little nipping. They're doing a lot of chewing. And whatever they're chewing, a lot of people think they're eating a lot of under what are what we call underground storage organs, tubers, you know, tuber foods, root root stock that we, you know, beets, what we would eat is beets and potatoes and things like that. There are a lot of wild versions of this in in Africa. So people think that they may have been focused on that. Um, So so they they are, uh, you know, related to us. They're not directly ancestral to us. Their line parallels ours. They parallel the genus Homo for more than a million years, and then they go extinct. So people have typically thought, oh, Paranthropus was probably not making stone tools. It, it had these giant jaws and teeth. It was doing something else. And But, you know, you do find Paranthropus fossils at archaeological sites. And at this site, Nyayanga, which is one of the oldest archaeological sites that you know, where you have hominid room. It is actually the oldest archaeological site published that has some sort of human or human relative associated with it. At this, at one of the hippo levels, there is a Paranthropus tooth. So it was right, you know, that, that creature was certainly on the landscape in, in the vicinity and right, you know, in this case, right at the spot where a hippopotamus was butchered. So then the question is, was Paranthropus using stone tools? And, you know, we have another Paranthropus tooth as well. We don't have any teeth of Homo from the site, and uh, you know I'm I'm glad we've got teeth. I hope we find more more remains of things related to us there. I'm I'm hoping in the future we will. It looked like it was a really nice spot in the landscape, like a place you'd want to be if you were a human relative, so or a human ancestor. So so I'm hoping we'll find more in the future. Um, but yeah, it's it's just it's it's this this was a sort of a, an extinct cousin that was thought to be just kind of a dead end and not and doing something different some people you know interested in stone tools and homo would have thought that they weren't very interesting i think they're very interesting um so it was interesting it was it was it was kind of fascinating to find them at the site and not not homo at the site so this is way before homo sapiens this the, the species of homo that would have been around would have been one that lewis Maybe one that Louis Leakey named, which was called Homo habilis from Moldavai Gorge. But this is even older than Homo habilis. So it's not clear. I mean, there, there, there are early specimens. There's an early specimen at about the age of this site in Ethiopia that belongs to Homo. But it's not named the species. It's clearly not Homo sapiens yet. Homo sapiens doesn't appear until about 300,000 years ago in, in Africa. And this site's closer to three million years ago, so it's way before Homo sapiens. Did they intersect? Did this extinct cousin, um, <laughs> you know, that had developed this use of the pounding and cutting tools, did that somehow intersect with the later Homo sapien groups? Or are they just uh, independently evolving? They're just and independently doing their yeah. They're independently doing their own thing, and I don't know for sure that Paranthropus is making stone tools. I think it just <laughs> brings up the point that we shouldn't discount it. I see that it could be that you've got more than one kind of of human relative making stone tools, and that you know these early stone tools are around for more than a million years. So it could be that you've got 
like multiple species using them, including Paranthropus, the one that people, many people thought was sort of a has-been. So, um, and you know, they're clearly smart. They've got bigger brains than chimpanzees and chimpanzees are really smart. So you would expect that Paranthropus could do a lot of interesting things as well. Um, you know, what's weird about human evolution is that what we the situation we find ourselves today with Homo sapiens being the only species of human around is really unusual for for almost all of the human evolutionary record there's more than one species of human around and or or very close human relative like paranthropus you know sometimes they're like five or six so you know our lineage survives but you know 40,000 years ago they were on the landscape with the Neanderthals in, in Eurasia. And in you know China, there was something else, uh, another kind of species that hasn't been named yet, but, but is, um, is, is a contemporary of both Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. You know, 100,000 years ago, when, when overlapping with Homo sapiens in time, there were these little creatures on, in, on islands in Indonesia, uh, tiny little humans that were like three and a half feet tall that, that you know, we're, we're contemporaries of the first Homo sapiens. And in South Africa, there's another group of hominins that look more like Homo habilis than Homo sapiens. And, and they're around the same time as Homo sapiens, too. There are all sorts of things in the landscape. Um, if you ever see this old movie called Quest for Fire, where there are multiple species of humans interacting in Europe, they have you know, Neanderthals, they have Homo sapiens, and they have something called probably Homo erectus or Homo heidelbergensis. But anyway, they got multiple forms of human there. That That's the way it was for almost all of human evolution. The fact that we're alone today is, is an anomaly. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Well, could we just hear a little about the act of archaeology itself? You mentioned that uh, some... Natives are alerted you to the idea that this site might be interesting. And then you mentioned this international team from, you know, different, were they museums around the world working together? Just kind of tell us about finding a site, setting it up, coordinating mm-hmm. it, funding it, yeah, um, yeah. working together across, I'm assuming, multiple languages, just kind of the archaeology of it. Right. Well, I started out as a graduate student, and my advisor um, is Rick Potts, who is now a curator at the Smithsonian, curator at the Smithsonian Institution, and he's the co-director of this project. So he's in the Human Origins Program at the Nat- National Museum of Natural History. So he pulled me in as a graduate student um, when he was still a professor at Yale, and I started working with him in Kenya, and basically, you know. I, I, you know, we were looking at places to work and this, this one particular site, which was an old Lewis Leakey site called Kanjara was, uh, looked like a really good place to work. So I did my dissertation there. And as you work, you, you, you know, we collaborate with people from the National Museums of Kenya. So they're, they're the, the partner institution there. And the National Museums of Kenya is a really like well-developed, world-renowned institution. So for archaeology, it's really, really good. And I collaborate with people there. Um, I have a, a another co-principal investigator there called named Rahab Kinyanjui, who is who is uh, 
you know, my, my Kenyan counterparts. And, and I work with people from University of Rome, from Oxford, from the, you pull in specialists and try to get people involved who can help with the projects. These projects have to be very interdisciplinary because you've got to understand the geology. You've got to try to date them. Dating is sometimes pretty difficult for some of these sites, especially where I work because the volcano had a weird chemistry and didn't make a lot of datable crystals. So we're always looking at different, different non-standard ways to date things. And, uh, I, you know, I work with people like there's a woman named Laura Bishop, who's an expert on pigs. So you think why, why pigs, right? Well, well, in terms pigs, pigs in Africa, there are lots of species of pigs during the course of human evolution and, and they evolve very rapidly. And, and because we have a lot of sites with a lot with different pigs and, and the species have been well sorted out, you can look at what pig fossil you've got at your site, what species it is. And that actually tells you about how old your site is. Oh, my so pig, gosh. Pigs, pigs, pigs can help you date. So it's, it's not it's not just like, you know, Wilbur or Babe. It's not just like one one kind of pig like we have with domestic pigs. There are lots of different kinds of pigs then and their teeth look different. So. There are different kinds of, of zebra relatives. There are different kinds of elephants. So there are lots of ways. So the initial way to actually date a site is often by looking at the kinds of animals you got at the site and, and comparing that to other sites that are well dated. And you get an idea of how old your site was. So we, we knew that Nyayanga was a very old site, you know, pretty early on from the pig fossils that we found there because they were older than the pig fossils we found at other sites. And they were from old, more ancient species. So we knew, oh, these ancient species are here. This has to be an old site. Um, so, so what you're doing then is you're, you're like, you find a research area. I work with collaborators. I, I've been lucky to get funding. So you've got to apply for funding. I've gotten, you know, multiple National Science Foundation grants. So I applied to the U.S. government to get, you know, with a proposal that's reviewed, that's peer reviewed and people rate, rate it or rank it. And then if it's ranked highly enough, I'm likely to get some funding. If I get criticism, if there's criticism and I have to resubmit if it's not ranked highly enough. There's also a big foundation in California called the Leakey Foundation that fund researchers, especially people starting out. So I got like three or four Leakey Foundation grants named after the Leakeys, right? Mary and Louis Leakey. So, so I've gotten money from the Wenner Gren Foundation, from National Geographic, from National Science Foundation, from Leakey Foundation, some institutional money, um, some, some private funds through the Smithsonian now, like the Donner Foundation Fund and the Buck Foundation funds that are coming from the Human Origins Program, through the Human Origins Program, through Rick Potts's program. And, you know, you try to raise enough money to do it because I could, you know, you can, you can spend tens of thousands of dollars, you're, you know, in, in, a, in a season with vehicle rentals, with airfares, with, with hiring uh, people to excavate. So we've been training local people to excavate. And many of them are now much better excavators than me. And, and we hire them year after year then. And, and they're like the excavation team. And because they come from near the sites, they're interested in what's going on and they help protect the sites too, because they have a vested interest in, in what's going on there. And uh, 
gosh, there's just so many parts to your job. Like I was aware yeah. you were a researcher, you were a teacher, you were an archaeologist, but you're yeah. also a fundraiser, a grant yeah. writer. And it seems like you have a real appreciation for the culture of the society where you're working and trying to foster those relationships with the excavators that, you know, are important in the work, but also from their own heritage. So yeah, for sure. And like showing, you know, giving tours to school children. So they see what's going on. I mean, in Kenya, you in, in your backyard in Kenya, you've got some, you know, multiple chapters of the origins of humanity. And, and you can't say that in many other places of the world. So it's, it's a pretty remarkable place. Eastern Africa has has you know many many volumes of of the you know or tomes on human evolution you know in in the preserved in the sediments there and 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 we're gradually sort of finding and reading you know little little snippets that are preserved of those ancient books so that's a maybe a stretched analogy, but no, anyway. I, love, I love the analogy, and we're just almost out of time, and I wanted to hear. Because we're a local podcast, I wanted to hear about you, how you became uh-huh. an archaeologist. I know you said you grew up near Depot Road outside of Gilderland right. Center, but just what what put you on this exciting path in life? Where I, where did you get this interest? What was your family like growing up? Uh, well, I grew up in an old farmhouse and we had a couple of acres of land and a lot of it was under cultivation. So I was outside working like like we grew all of the vegetables we ate and and we had fruit trees my dad still lives there so he's still there on depot road and uh i I was outside all the time working we 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 grew enough corn that we could sell it we had more corn than we could you know eat we were selling corn at the end you know i'd put a sign out at the end of the driveway and people drive up and we'd give them fresh corn and I was always interested in in the past. Just I don't know why. I mean, why 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 does anybody interested in anything? But but I was always <laughs> interested. So I was I was interested in dinosaurs. I, I you know we found some Native American uh, artifacts when we were like tilling the soil, and I was we were always interested in that. I, I was thinking it would, there's a creek right next to abutting the property, so I was down at the, the creek, Black Creek. You know, yeah, 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 Black Creek. So so picking you know catching frogs and crayfish and minnows and playing down there. I was just outside all the time. So I was kind of pre-adapted for field work because, you know, I like being outside. And in terms of like working, growing stuff, it's a lot of, it, you've got an end goal, which is the, 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 the vegetables you're going to eat. But a lot of the work is monotonous. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you, you spend like weeks and weeks just digging and weeding and doing all of this stuff. And we had big fields. It was a lot of work. Um, so I was kind of pre, pre-adapted to doing archaeology because I was used to being out in the sun doing kind of mind-numbing work, which is what a lot of archaeology is when you start out, right? You're just digging. You don't know what you're going to find. It's it's just digging into the soil and seeing what comes up. So it's the treasure hunting aspect of it, but sometimes you find nothing. So it's not, it's, it's more like you've got to have kind of an interest in what you're doing and, and, you know, a sense that you're going to find something to dig in particular places. Well, but my dad, my dad was a scientist and my mom was really encouraging of us. And, you know, all of all the kids, in my family got biology degrees. So, so 
my dad was a biochemist who worked for New York State. So, but he had a lot of interest in botany. So that's why we had like big gardens and things like that. So, so I had a lot of encouragement from both my parents. And, uh, you know, we would go like look at prehistoric sites, like we could drive to things like that to encourage me. So I always had that encouragement. And then I got a biology degree, but I did biological anthropology, which is like human osteology, studying bones, you know, for TV shows, forensic, forensic osteologists who are like the osteologists who are looking at bones on TV. That's a kind of biological anthropology, paleoanthropology, looking at fossils is, is a subfield of biological anthropology. So my, I was doing biology, but my advisor was actually a biological anthropologist. And when I went to graduate school, I continued on with that. And then I was lucky that I, you know, that, that Rick Potts took me on as a student so that I actually had field opportunities because the field opportunities sometimes, you know, it's, it's more, it's, it's easier to attach yourself to a project that's already established. Otherwise it's pretty hard. And, and it was, it was really, you know, it helped my, it helped me a lot, my interests and my career and my development to have been attached to this project that ultimately moved from Yale to the Smithsonian. And I got to know a lot of like really, you know, stellar people working in Eastern Africa then. So through, through all the connections of my advisors, and then you just sort of gradually develop yourself, your own career. Yeah, what an exciting career. And this mention, you you use the word treasure hunt. Can you just tell us what it's like when you're on a site like this one in Kenya? And do you know when someone, say, finds that molar? Is there like a sense of excitement in the whole group? Or does it take... Oh, yeah. Uh, does, no, there's a lot of excitement. <laughs> like the, the one molar we found where the hippopotamus butchery was, it was the very last day of the season. There was a thunderstorm coming in from the lake. My my graduate student, who who's now got a PhD, and she's a curator at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. Her name's Emma Feinstone. She was on a, on top of a hill with a laser transit, which is a big metal contraption used for surveying. And, you know, I was worried about I was worried about her being on the hill with the lightning coming, you know, the, the thunderstorm coming in. We, but we had like 200, 300 things to lift. And you've got to take the coordinates with this laser transit. You've got to take the coordinate of each thing before you pick it out of the ground so you can reconstruct the distribution of objects in the excavation. And Blasto Onyango, who's one of the National Museums of Kenya people, he, 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 he recognizes hominin teeth. He already knew there was a human tooth in, in the, the group of teeth that we were trying to lift and, and bones that we were trying to lift. And so, but he didn't tell me. So we were just going along. And then, and then I came to the tooth and I picked it up. And, and, you know, there's a thunderstorm and I'm and starting to, you can feel drops on us and we have to lift everything because it's the last day of the season. And, and I'm looking at this and it's like, wow, this is a hominin tooth. And it was, you know, we've only had two early human relatives from the, from the whole peninsula and, and they're both from this site. So this site, I think is going to be a good site for, for, for finding hominin fossils, but it was a paranthropus tooth and just, just like all of that. And then we were all like, everybody was smiling at me because they hadn't told me they wanted me to be surprised. <laughs> so, oh, I love it. then, it's like a scene from a movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was in the same level as the hippopotamus butchery site. And, you know, and then and then, you know, the next day we, we did manage to lift everything. You know, Emma did not get struck by lightning. So we got her off the hill before before the big storm rolled in. 
and uh and then we the next day we we fill in this giant hole that we were digging in and and every season you've got to empty it out and and start and keep going because we haven't actually hit the end of it at the end last year i was there again why, last year. why do you have to fill it in couldn't you just put a cover over it and save yourself the- uh, it's 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 on a slope and the sentiment's pretty the sediment's pretty soft and, and there's enough erosion because it's on Lake Victoria. So there's a lot of lake effect rain. So unlike a lot of Kenya, like Northern Kenya is very arid. This, this, this area on Lake Victoria gets a lot of rain. So, so, you know, when I'm walking down every year, there's new material. So you talked about what is it like every year? Like when we first are walking onto the site, we never know what we're going to see because there's enough rain that new things are eroding out all the time. Like even during a season, there was one, one, you know, a rainstorm. And, and the next day I saw my, my son found a, a lion canine like a, a, two, a, a more than two million year old lion canine. And there's another time that we found a, a bone after a storm that had stone tool cut marks on it from them cutting the meat off the bone 2.8 million years ago. So you never know what's going to pop out. So, so you know, we, we're always looking and, and there are lots of monkey, cool monkey fossils. There are all sorts of animals there. There's a saber tooth cat fossil. There are lots of pigs and antelopes. There, there are there's a lot of interesting stuff to find in addition to the stone tools. So you have your family with you. Your son found this. My, my, yeah, my son came out, I think, four seasons. So so when, you know, in the summers when he was still in, in mid, well, uh, like junior in high school, junior high school and high school, he came out. He came out, I think. Yeah. So it was four seasons. Yeah. He was coming out and he was working with us. There was one season though. He was like, uh, I'm not going to, you know, I've done this enough now. And he, (laughs) and he basically got adopted by a Kenyan family and, and spent the summer doing stuff with them, with their kids. So he would go to the lake and they'd go out in the boat and fish. And then he'd help them like collect corn, you know, uh, uh, get corn. So, so, you know, the corn they were growing or millet. And, you know, he just hung out with, with some local kids and had that experience. So they speak Swahili in much of Kenya, but, but this area is actually the area where Barack Obama's father came from. His father was from the Luo tribe. And, and this, I'm in actually working in the Luo cultural region, the Luo, the Luo tribal region of Kenya. So Western Kenya. So what language um, is that? So they, they, they speak Luo. They speak Luo. Okay. They say speaking. A lot of them speak English. You know, a lot of them speak Swahili. So, so communication isn't too bad. I speak enough Swahili that I can like direct excavations in Swahili. But uh, so, so yeah. So, so there is sort of the multilingual thing. And then I work with Italians, and you know, they they're they 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 speak to us in sort of English and some Italian as well, and that's kind of cool. And you know, they're they're also British people speaking British English and Australian. We work with Australians too. So we have like different, different, lots of different accents on the project. It's just so exciting. It's like all parts of the world coming together Mm -hmm. to find out about a common history, which is so rare in this world today, you know? Yeah, no, it it is really fun to do that. And, you know, this is a good spot because there was an ancient, there was this, 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 the reason why they're hippos is there's an ancient stream there. 
the sites are right along this ancient stream. So when the, when the stream overflowed, it would bury the sites. There was a freshwater spring. So the stream, streams, maybe during the dry season, weren't running so much. But there was also a freshwater spring there. So there was, and there would have been trees, there were trees around and there would have been fruits and, and other foods, leaves for them to eat from the trees. And, you know, underground storage organs nearby and animals coming back and forth that the hominids could maybe hunt. The hippos, I think they scavenged. I can't imagine they hunted something that big um, with before, like some some more sophisticated technology. Uh, but, but you know, it was just a, an idyllic setting. So if you could avoid the saber-toothed cats up in the trees... You know, then then you were probably pretty good and they would not have been sleeping on the ground. They would have been sleeping up in trees. So every, everything like trees were really important before before fire. You don't sleep on the ground. That's like where all the hyenas and lions and everything are. You're, you're dead meat if you're on the ground at night. So living primates climb up into trees to sleep. And I'm sure that's what our ancestors were doing, too. I just have this sense that you have in your brain this idea of a whole earlier world from 200 million years ago yeah. that yeah. just, I, I can't imagine how you see things. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I've been thinking about it for a long time, but, and you know, that's, that's also something that developed over time like i have a good imagination and that's something i've had since a kid and and i think that helps you with archaeology because you're 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 not you're you're looking at i mean you're thinking about places that may not look exactly like anywhere that exists today so so you need to sort of use the evidence you have in front of you from the geology and and the the plant remains and the animal remains and the stone tools and try to put it together in a way that is is as true as you can make it be to to what existed in the past i i was in the like my my major is in biology was ecology and systematics so i i I, like i've always sort of thought in terms of broader scale environments so it's not always just about the human fossils it's it's every like the whole ecosystem so so that's we're we're looking at that we're looking at the the behavior of these early humans but within the ecosystem they lived in how important for right now in humankind's history because we've ignored <laughs> the larger world around us with our industrialization and here you are trying to put this ancient wow, society it was, it was back in its context completely different then and humans relationships to nature was completely different then so we were we were part of the the you know the, the broader eastern african and south african the broader african animal communities we were just one one member of it and you know there was no dominance over all over like all other life forms there was no i mean they may have modified the landscape somewhat but it's not that not as much as elephants or other animals do so so you know what we see today is just completely different and it's recent even for human like homo sapiens history it's a recent thing i mean we you know cities and population growth is only happening after agriculture and domestication so if you look at you know sites older than twenty thousand years ago 
you know, it's all hunter gatherers, it's all foraging peoples and their population densities were much lower. And, you know, it, it would have been like a very, very different time. I, I can't imagine like kids today looking at their iPhones or, or spend, or, you know, we're look, talking on the computer, you know, there, that there's no screens. You'd have to imagine what it was like without screens, without, you know, any sophisticated technology, just, just you on the landscape surviving by your wits and, and knowing what plant foods were edible and watch learning how to make stone tools by watching the people around you and, you know, whatever they're doing with plants, I'm sure they're making digging sticks with, with, with wood. Uh, I mean, there's evidence of woodworking at these early sites. So they're probably, and, and a digging stick, the difference between a digging stick and a simple spear is not that much. I, I think they probably have sticks that they're sharpening, that they're using both to dig up things as well as to, to kill animals or protect themselves. Wow, um, I, I feel like you're a philosopher as much as a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I wish our time hadn't disappeared. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? I really, I really enjoyed my childhood. I think growing up in that area is like a, it's a great place to be. If I could have gotten a job like at SUNY Albany, I would have like gladly moved back to the you know metropolitan Albany area. So. You know, I was really happy you asked me to give the talk because I love going. Every time I go back, I enjoy it. And I still, you know, have very fond memories of my childhood there. So it's good. It's good to live there. You know, it's a nice place. And, you know, every place has got different benefits and opportunities. And I think there are a lot of them, you know, in, in your region. <laughs> <laughs>